Hi, this is Tamson Granger. And this is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan Read the Paper. Oh, and Sadie's here. Sadie's here. Sadie Abuhoff. Sadie came up uh, for our annual field trip to Mohonk Mountain House. That's right. By the way, it's Sunday. November 10th. November 10th. Time is flying. Yes. Pretty much it's Thanksgiving. Right. Well, it's Veterans Day first. Yes. Yes. But tell us about Mohonk. How was Mohonk, Sadie? Mohonk is the same as always, which is the way we want it to be. Okay. Mohonk Mountain House, which opened in... Uh, 150 it, years ago. Yeah, 1870. Is that right? Yeah. They're oh. celebrating 150. There's another anniversary I'll come up to later. It's 150th, too. Oh, really? Yeah, totally. And, uh, is that your wedding anniversary? No, I can tell you what it was. It's, it's the 150th anniversary of college football, which is why they had Princeton playing Dartmouth in Yankee Stadium. A lot of big things were going on at the end of the 19th century. Well, Princeton in played in that States. first game. And uh, so it's uh, it's really, it's a remarkable setting. It's one of those big old uh, resort hotels and emphasis on old. Mm-hmm. And uh, the setting is magnificent. It's, uh, we've Very talked about it before. Rooseveltian. Rooseveltian? Word. Yes. Huh? Okay. I always feel like Roosevelt when I'm there. Which one? Okay. FDR. Oh, okay. Although you can see Teddy lurking. No, around. no, no. I, I'm with her Hyde Park type thing. It's it's like a big uh, expanse like that. I, I, I see that. But it's uh, you know it's famous for uh, its trails, its wonderful hikes, its fantastic views. Not famous for food. No, a lot of fireplaces, a lot of rockers, a lot of sitting there and reflective thought, uh, communing with nature, all that. But some exquisite modern additions. Really? And I, I think I've said before on yeah. this podcast right. that it has one of the most beautiful indoor pools I've ever been in. Yeah, it's true. And uh, I did a fair amount of swimming. Sadie and I sat outside in a hot, hot mineral bath. Pool, bath, hot tub thing, mm-hmm. under the stars with almost a full moon. Oh, very nice. Was uh, cool mountain breezes in a couple wafting weeks. about. Yeah, a couple of weeks, the ice skating rink. The outdoor covered ice skating rink. Yeah. Um, So, uh, but we did not, once again, we did not manage to go to tomahawk throwing. Did they have it? That's one of the activities. No experience necessary. (laughs) Well, when we go up there a few weeks, we're going. (laughs) We'll see. Yeah. All right. Well, that's... uh... But we always look down on the tomahawk throwing area. And? And uh, longingly. Yeah. Oh, as one does. If only we had the time. That's right. So if we had the tomahawks. Oh, shucks. All right. So, well, you were away. I was, for lack of a better term, abandoned on my own. But I had the opportunity to watch a little college football. Uh, the game of the century. I know we're not deeply into the century, so that doesn't mean as much as it might. But it was LSU against Alabama, the number two and three teams in the nation, playing in Tuscaloosa. Supposed to be a great game, and it was. Strangely, a great game. Okay. An unbelievable game. And I didn't intend to watch the whole thing, but I couldn't get away. And LSU did win, and it's tough to win in Alabama. Uh, and they did that. I don't think Alabama's lost in 31 games or so in, in Alabama. Uh, a tremendous ball game. So it got you excited about college football. And it's funny, I picked up the Times today, and I was curious what they had to say about college football, and that game in particular. And the Times didn't have uh, two words on college football, nothing. Didn't make, didn't make the Times Sports section. 
they, their lead article was an article about um, high school football in some areas declining in popularity, spelling to the Times the decline in popularity of football generally. So the so the Times articles are written like weeks in advance. Let me tell you something. The Times article would have to be written 50 years in the future to make any sense. <laughs> Uh, but I mean, it's no, not no, like no. they're it's actually just, following no, the sports. No, it's, it's not even that. It's no excuse. The Times has a drum to beat. The Times believes that the football uh, has had its day and it should, and people should no longer play it. And they have, therefore, they're trying to demonstrate that by keeping their eyes closed and their hands on their ears by saying, see, football is no longer popular. Uh, that's really what they're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't mind talking about this in an area that's not serious. Sports isn't that serious. But it's not what one would call journalism. Because college football is crazy popular. Uh, the game, you put aside the game I mentioned a moment ago, where 102,000 102, people were at the game. Uh, there was a game in Minnesota. Minnesota hasn't had a good team for years. And the Minnesota Golden Gophers are undefeated, 5-0 and playing Penn State. Also 5-0 and in Minnesota. They had 52,000 people at the game. I think, hmm? I think Penn State was 8-0. No. Trust me, they were 5-0. and uh, They're not that deep into the season. But the point is, there's a big article in the Wall Street Journal, of all places, about this huge game for Minnesota because they've always been mediocre. Here's the chance for them to turn the tide, if you will. And who do they quote in the article? Glenn Mason, a previous coach of Minnesota. And Sadie, do you remember who Glenn Mason is? Yes, it's my math teacher from 8th grade's brother. Exactly right. Exactly right. Mrs. Penny her uh, brother, Glenn Mason, and they quote him saying, we could never get players here because we played in a lousy place. They built a new stadium, and they had this huge game, uh, which they were, all their hopes were riding against Penn State, and they got 50,000 people. The, the Wall Street Journal has also, by coincidence, an article called A Football Saturday, A Cultural Reckoning in Mid-America, about a guy who lives in the Northeast, but who came from the Midwest, and he goes back to visit his family, his brother in particular, uh, who had gone to Northwestern. Northwestern was playing the Iowa Hawkeyes. And he writes all about the experience. And he says, uh, surprisingly, if not reluctantly, that more than anything, uh, I realize that the game is just an excuse to get together, to kickoffs and tailgates for a bonus in marking another year, spared the reaper. As the stalker thought intrudes, I think to myself, you are a Northeastener, and the way you live is ridiculous. For whatever reason, I've chosen to live no closer than the outer perimeters of any community. Evanston, Illinois, makes visible the cost of my choices. And he goes on to say what a great time he had. Everybody's getting together, everybody's drinking, everybody's eating, and it's sort of um, a way of life. Uh, Anyway, times notwithstanding, I think it is a way of life. Uh, It's not going away anytime soon. And maybe uh, it shouldn't go away anytime soon. I should also tell you, because I know you're on bated breath, uh, Minnesota beat Penn State on the last play of the game in an interception, and that field was mobbed. If you can put it on YouTube, you'll never see, you've never seen a scene like it. Almost everybody in the stands ran out on the field, and they went crazy. All right. So there you and, go. And love of football is spreading. Is it? Uh, to new immigrant populations. Is that right? Yes, yes, it's a big headline actually in the Times, uh, it was in the Times, uh, at Tennessee Titans games, the fiercest tailgaters are Kurds. Really? 
And apparently there's a, a fair-sized Kurdish population in Nashville, yeah. arriving uh, largely during the 90s. Uh, and uh, apparently they love football. Well, the Times will write about and, it. And uh, the kids play football. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. Uh, but they also, they love tailgating, and uh, they set up these tents. They like the communal sort of party yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah. Reminds some of them of celebrating the Persian New Year. And uh, it's the same as other tailgaters, except um, most of the uh, Kurds are Muslim and don't drink yeah. alcohol. So they have like Kool-Aid and orange soda. Uh, but then they have uh, you know, a fair amount of traditional Kurdish foods, birani and um, uh, what else? Stuffed grape leaves, kebabs, things like that. But uh, largely, they said, uh, most of the people in the group actually go for the American foods that they bring. Yes. The hamburgers and hot dogs. And the brats. Uh, yeah. And uh, you know, they say it's the Americans who are kind of looking over longingly, and they I may guess. share the traditional right. foods with them if they have enough. Um, oh. But uh, you know, they're wild about it. They, you know, the the um, the Titans, I guess, have been uh, in uh, Nashville since also since the late nineties. Yeah. Yes. Um, and uh, they're generally underdogs. Yeah, up and down. They're not a great team. Yeah. But they, you know, they enjoy kind yeah, of the previous them Houston on. Oilers. You know, so there, there you have that. But, well, that's a pro team. But even so, the same idea. You know, we should sometime go to a college football game. But not, as I said, you know, Yankee Stadium, Princeton, Dartmouth is not the idea. I think the idea is to go out into the Midwest and go to one of these big Ohio State, Michigan, that kind of game. I was going to say, I've been to a lot of college football games. Most of them have been Dartmouth games. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if that's the same experience. It's not, not the same experience. It's not yeah. the same experience. I, I don't think uh, Division I have, 1A is quite the same yeah. as Division 1A. I have a lot of uh, friends at work who went to UVA and Virginia Tech. Yeah. And a lot of that's the tech, getting there. Yeah, a lot of the techies will make a point to go to one big game a year. And it's always a big a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. My friend Martha Ann's daughter went to UVA. And they took on the tradition of tailgating with enthusiasm. Yeah. And uh, they lived in Arlington. They would drive out uh, to Charlottesville for the games uh, and uh, get into it. Well, you know, it's when the weather turns this way and there are three or four weekends in the fall, you say, geez, that must be something. That must be something. Uh, but uh, Life is not all football. Well, but in Northeast, you never get time off from work. But Sadie has the solution to that. Right, Sadie? Yes. So there's an article in the Times about a five-hour workday. So a gentleman in Germany has started a business and structured it in such a way that there are five-hour workdays, and there are a lot of rules that go along with this. You cannot be on social media during these five hours. You basically drop your cell phone at the door, and you check your email only a couple times a day, and most meetings are supposed to be 15 minutes or less. So he has all 15? these 15, 15 minutes or less. Okay. They're supposed to be working. So right. the point is... Is it five days a week? Yes. So it's a 25-hour work week? Yes. The point is that they're getting rid of all the fluff, making sure you focus while you're at work. You get in at 8 a.m., you leave at 1 p.m., you're done. You're not expected to check email after work. You're not expected to do anything extra. Well, that's interesting. And is it working? It seems to be working for him. And the Times makes the point that, you know, revolutions in the workplace are not unheard of. Henry Ford cut his production time from 12 hours for one car to 93 minutes by using the assembly line. So they kind of make the point that there is, 
you know, you can change the way that we work and make and improve it, but they kind of leave it as an open question as to whether this can work. I think it would be a huge challenge um, because it's such a cultural shift. And I think a lot of businesses are dependent on each other yeah. so that if one business goes to a five hour work week or work day, other businesses have to follow or else it's not really going to work. Yeah, it doesn't, it's not going to work in a service industry. I was going to say, we have to get the calls. For me, who I'm dealing with clients all day long, yeah. if my clients work an eight hour workday, I need to work an eight hour workday, right. period. Right. Because if they can call me at any point, I need to be responsive but, to that. But if it's like you're doing, uh, devising consumer, you know, computer programs or websites or something right. like that, maybe. I mean, they focus on the, the concept of knowledge work. Yeah. But I do think I'm in the realm of knowledge work, but it just happens to be client service. Well, this may solve some problems. I mean, there there are new demands that uh, people are putting on uh, the idea of the perfect job, yeah. uh, including raising families. Right. And it's it's not uncommon for more you know parents to want to be available to the kids, right. et cetera, in ways that uh, you know some of these longer days well, don't allow. It, it, in principle, it's kind of interesting. It's saying you know put aside your phone, put aside everything else, and do the best you can to get more work done in less time, and maybe we'll make it. Give you a better schedule. So, but I think it w- it works well for this startup company, but for companies that are very well established, yeah. I think making that switch would be a huge transition. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, changes in uh, the workplace or working life, uh, there's a crisis in France. And uh, the New York Times headline is "Tragedy in France." Villages without bakeries. And I'm not going to belabor this, but it's just, it's a fairly long article about how bakeries are closing in France. I mean, what's that one romantic vision we have of every little town in France, every little street corner in Paris, people lining up to buy the daily baguette? And uh, they're saying that uh, the bakeries baking the baguettes are just disappearing. Mm-hmm. People are not looking for the long hours and the hard work of uh, being a baker and the money is simply not there so yeah. the ba- the bakeries are shutting down uh, there are various solutions uh, like almost like a um, uh, vending machine bakery where the baguettes are loaded into you know some kind of uh, box and you buy it from them people say they're good uh, but uh, there have been towns that actually have bought the bakeries and subsidized trying to restart the bakeries, etc. And uh, that's been tough to work out. Also, people's lives have changed. Uh, they're not uh, they're not around to buy bread every day, so they're just buying uh, a few loaves on the weekend, which doesn't really support mm-hmm. uh, the the bakers as well. So we may be losing that romantic. Well, uh, there are fewer bakeries here than there used yeah. to be, that's for sure. And it's not just a question of the bread. It's a question of the community aspect, the yeah. seeing your neighbors, et cetera, lining up for the bread and you know, yeah. uh, developing relationships with the baker, et cetera. All right. Um, Tom Seaver, I know you were hoping to talk more about baseball uh, now the season is just over. There happened to be an article in Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com, I should say, that someone sent me. About Tom Seaver, uh, apropos of nothing, uh, and who he was and how he basically was, you know, s- such uh, the center of the Mets winning the World Series in 1969, going from worst to first in the so-called miracle year. Um, I will only give you one statistic. I will say number one. Tom Seaver was better than any pitcher you see these days. He's better than Garrett Cole. 
He was better than uh, Verlander. He's better than all these guys. It's not even close. Uh, here's the one, the one stat I'll give you. The one stat is that in those days, uh, and especially Seaver would pitch the whole game. That means pitching through the ninth inning. He pitched the ninth inning 18 times that year, and he never surrendered a run or even an extra base hit in any ninth inning in the 18 times he pitched it. Here you have closers making zillions of dollars trying to do something like that. He was just doing that because he was finishing the game. So Seaver was, you know, unbelievable. And he kind of spearheaded that team. And the article is a little poignant because it's about a bunch of guys getting together, namely Art Chamsky, uh, Jerry Kuzman, Bud Harrelson, Ron Sabota, to visit Seaver out in California where he has a winery. And Seaver, Seaver, as we've mentioned, is suffering from dementia. And his wife, Nancy, said he has good days and bad days. You guys want to come out here, take a chance, go ahead. But the article talks to these guys and about what they remember. And they joke about a lot of things. There's one story they have about how Seaver changed the mentality of the team. You know, he was at, at Toot Shores, the famous bar, uh, one, day, one evening during the season. It was 1 a.m. And Ralph Houck, the manager of the Yankees, who were doing poorly then, came up to him and said, if you keep these hours, you'll never succeed in the major leagues. And Seaver said to him, the manager of the Yankees. If you had 25 guys like me, you wouldn't be in 10th place. Whoa. Uh, <laughs> they also have a, a, have a story about Nancy Seaver, who was, you know, they were like the golden couple. Uh, and um, and yet she was kind of competitive. At one point, Seaver got hit uh, by a pitch by Dennis Rybant in a game. He got hit on the elbow. And they took him to the hospital, and Nancy was there. And she said uh, to the reporters, if only he'd gotten hit in the head, because uh, that wouldn't affect his pitching. I mean, uh, <laughs> Nancy. <laughs> anyway, I'll t- the one story that really sticks with me is this. Uh, sitting around talking with these guys. Eventually, they do get to see Tom. Not the first day. He had a bad day. The second day, they do, and they, they reminisce and whatever. But when they're talking about the day where they can't see him, just among themselves, what they remember from that year, uh, Bud Harrelson uh, has the best story. Um, and this is his story. There's a very famous game, Seaver Pitts, that people talk about all the time. And it was uh, when the Mets were trying to catch the Chicago Cubs. And it was in July of 1969. The Cubs were the first place team. And could the Mets compete? And Seaver not only uh, pitched the team to a win, not only pitched effectively, but had a perfect game into the ninth inning. Uh, ultimately, someone got a hit, ruined a perfect game. But it was an astounding game. And uh, Bud Harrelson is a little guy. He's five foot six, 147 pounds or something like that. Wasn't at the game. He was in the, in those days, once in a while, you had to serve in, in the National Reserve. Uh, so he was doing his reserve duty. Uh, so he was in upstate New York. And he was going to miss a couple of weeks. And there's a bar upstate. And uh, no one knows who he is. And he's sitting there at this bar. And he's watching this game. He's just one of the people. And he sees what's going on. And at some point, he gets so excited. You know, when Seaver, uh, you know, finishes the game and wins this fantastic game, he doesn't even say... You know, I'm on the Mets. He doesn't say, that's my guy. You know, it doesn't say, uh, we're in first place. He's yelling in the bar to the guy next to him. He said, I know Tom Seaver. Tom Seaver is a friend of mine. Mm-hmm. That's all he could say. Um, they were so excited for Seaver. He was clearly the leader of the team. And they all knew Tom Seaver. That's why they won. 1969. So there you go. All right. Nice. Um, <laughs> well, let's uh, switch gears a little bit uh, yeah. to something more frivolous, and uh, that is uh, from an article 
from the Wall Street Journal, How Much Fashion is Too Much at Work. And there's an article about, uh, you know, um, basically a guide for expressive professionals. What do you think, Sadie? How much fashion is too much at work? I think this is classic Wall Street Journal of just making the <laughs> assumption that people have so much money to spend on clothes. I mean, I was, it's an interesting article, just like the women just working in creative industries talking about, you know, the fancy clothes that they wear. Um, and their different understandings of, you know, their level at the office and how experimental they can be. They were saying that some of the younger women at the office are not as willing to be as experimental. They feel like they need to prove themselves. Some of the um, more established women are a little more willing to uh, let it go and wear what they want to wear. I think this is kind of a luxury of people who have time <laughs> to, A, spend a lot of Time to think about what they're wearing and go shopping and do all of this stuff. And then also be, have the money to spend on clothes. Which, right, all right. They, and, yeah. And not that you have to buy really expensive clothes to look fashionable, but just the concept that you're buying different outfits, you're spending time thinking about the different accessories and things. I think it's kind of a luxury, and I think it really only works in a few industries. Right. Okay. Well, you know, I think that's fair. I, I, I mean, this one uh, person says, I don't want to come in wearing something that's uh, so extremely eccentric that it's all they talk about at the meeting. Exactly. And, you and, don't and, want to be distracting. Right. You have to keep your clients, uh, you know, sort of... Uh, right. But you don't want to be known for your outfit. You want to be known for your for abilities. For your work. Yeah. Right. Right. But people want to stand out and be different. Yeah, and, but, but uh, men men just want to wear a uniform. Men, right, right. You know? Well, we're talking about women. I understand. I'm just, uh, just But it is, of course, a funny article because in the, in the clothes they are looking at, it's like $3,000 jacket, uh, $2,000 skirt and shirt and so on. So it's, it's, a, it's, as Sadie's saying, a whole different level. But it wasn't that long ago that actually um, they were having articles about, remember, these companies that rent designer works, designer right. outfits. Right. Okay. And I, I think, Sadie, actually, you said to me, I, you know, no, no, well, maybe it wasn't so much you. There was a, a woman in the article who said, you know, for a while I was renting these great outfits and I was looking spectacular. And then I just uh, got tired of being the person that everybody was talking about my outfits. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yeah. So it's, it's that same topic. You want to be known for your work, uh, not for uh, your picture. But it also, I think it depends what line of work you're in. Because if you are in a really, yeah, you know, creative industry, industry yeah. then you want to put that forward as well. Yeah. You want to be like, I'm a really creative person. You can see that I'm creative by what you see on my body. And I'm going to create creative things for you. Of course, this article has it quotes people who are advising right. uh, financial people and lawyers mm-hmm. and yeah. how they can, you know, up their game right. and still be, you know fit in, right. in a way, uh, which, you know, it, it seems kind of doubtful. Well, but you had the, the more practical article about travel pants. Yes, the Brotherhood of the Travel Pants, also in the Wall Street How Journal. How did I miss this article? I mean, uh, this is like right up my I don't, alley. I don't even know, but um, what are travel pants, first of all? Travel pants, uh, you know, are basically things that are stretchy, yeah. right? And withstand uh, moisture and wrinkles. Okay. Okay. And, uh, you know, it's a, basically a way of being, having something to travel in that's pretty much like pajamas. 
but doesn't look quite oh, that well, casual. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like I'm a, more positive than that, but yes, yes, yes. I think it's like the men's answer to the athleisure no, trend. You know, the microfiber travel pants I have, I think, look pretty sharp. Yeah. Well, the, the point of the <laughs> article the really trend. is that men are not using them only for travel. I wouldn't says, either. Surprise, surprise, men just like comfortable pants. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right? Who wrote this and, article? And uh, they also... They're onto something. And, uh, and they say, you know, can you wear them to work? And they say, well, you know, in San Francisco, what passes for office attire, office attire today looks less like Don Draper's Tony tailoring yeah. and more like the sort of ratty hoodie New England oh, Patriots yes. coach Bill Belichick wears on the sidelines. Yes, but this isn't so ratty. This point, is not ratty. Right, that's what I'm saying. The travel point, the travel point pants uh, fit into that perfectly. Yes. They, they seem like an upgrade well, they compared also, to what most tech guys are wearing. The other thing is they don't wrinkle. Well, that's the thing. They always look great. Exactly. Well, not great, but they don't wrinkle. They don't look like... Uh, some of them look greater than others. Yes. And they're touted here. But I understand they you have, have some high-priced ones. They yes. have suggestions yes. uh, ranging from $995 pants from a company called Segna to $128 pants from Lululemon. They're getting, right? They still have to go a ways to go. They have to get a little lower for me. But but yes. You want you don't want a uh, hundred dollar pants? No, 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 not travel pants. My travel pants. Sure, because travel pants, you know, are going to get the most abuse. Okay. I yes, I. And, I, I uh, the other thing about it, you don't have to send them to the dry cleaner. You yes. just throw them in the washing. No, travel machine. pants are great. They look fabulous. Yes. But this just reminds me of like pajama jeans. Jeans are too uncomfortable, so we're going to have stretchy pants that look like jeans. And I feel like this is what it is. It's like they look a little bit like dress pants, but they're a totally different material. So they're better. I will tell you that we were going when we were going up Kilimanjaro. All right, one day it was a particularly cold day. Did you just want to drop Kilimanjaro? I wanted to. Throw, I put on travel pants because travel pants are comfortable and they go through anything. You can uh, deal with it. It's an extra layer. I just like to say I don't. <laughs> I don't own any travel pants. Uh, I fly in jeans. You, you don't do mountain climbing. It's, you fly in jeans or do you fly? You fly in yoga pants. I don't do not. You lie. First don't of all, lie. first of all, I don't own any yoga pants. You have some stretchy a, pants. I don't do yoga. And B, all of my stretchy pants I wear to the gym, I don't wear in public. All right. No, I've seen you in stretchy pants. Right. We'll, we'll have no, to take an airplane. We'll take no, this outside later, later. No, you have not. Right. I fly in jeans. Well, so. keep when's, when's the last time keep... you were on an airplane with me? Not this year. Okay. All right. Um, go, keeping uh, the fashion focus going. Yes. Great obituary this week yeah. of Gert Boyle. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, tough mother stamped image on Columbia Sportswear, right. says the Wall Street Journal. Gert Boyle, 95, Columbia Sportswear chief, billed as one tough mother dies. Yes. And uh, so it's this great story of this woman whose uh, family immigrated from Germany and uh, moved to Portland. Her father started a business, uh, a hat-selling business. And, and uh, eventually... Her husband comes into the business. Eventually, you know, hats are not really selling anymore. So they segue into sportswear. Her husband dies of a heart attack in 1970. And Gert and her young son, who's like 20 at the time, have to figure out how to run the company. Right. The beauty of it is they had no intention of really doing that. They thought, we'll sell the company. And uh, Gert's in the middle of negotiations. And it turns out... Uh, 
she will be getting about fourteen hundred dollars right, for the, the sale the of offer. her father's company. Right. And she and says, she says you know, I, you know, I'd rather be, you know, p- run it into the ground myself right. than uh, sell it for that pittance. And so, by hook or by crook, she and her son figure out how to run a business. She had no background in it, zero. She was a housewife. She had a degree in sociology. Um, but they figure it out. And, of course, one of the most fun things about it was that uh, this um, advertising campaign that really posed her as this kind of tough mother overseeing everything and making sure these, uh, you know, uh, jackets, etc., were tough enough, you know, for her children, her Yeah, customers. I look, I remember the answer. Tremendously effective. There was one where she uh, shows a bicep tattoo uh, saying born to nag mm-hmm. i mean it's it's great they have a uh, picture of that in the times uh, another described her as obsessive anal fanatical and that's on a good day yes. and uh, then there was another that advised if you want something that mellows with age drink wine okay <laughs> uh, kind of saying that it's not going to be girt um, so, uh, and one of the fun anecdotes uh, from the uh, New York Times was that, uh, you know, uh, I guess uh, I don't, uh, a few years ago, uh, she actually had to fight off a home invader, uh, and uh, she managed to fight them off. She pressed a silent panic button to alert the police when later the police chief came in to check on her and see how she was doing. She looked at him and kind of growled, I was feeling a lot better until you walked in here with a North Face jacket yes. on. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we've always seen Columbia Sportswear right. uh, in the stores. Sure. And, uh, I mean, it's a huge business. I had no idea it was quite that huge, but they really built it no, amazing, into amazing. an enormous business. She's uh, been a um, an incredible philanthropist, and uh, she kept going to work. In her old age, her son accused her, he said, you know, when you die, I'm going to have you stuffed and permanently placed in the entryway. And uh, she said, that suits me just fine, as long as I'm dressed head to toe in Colombia. Yeah, good. Yeah, it's a pretty impressive story. Pretty amazing story. Yeah. And I'm on again? Yes. Okay, if you're looking for something fun to read, uh, there's a new book out, uh, The Letters of Cole Porter by Cliff Eisen and Dominic McHugh. And, uh, you know, there have been a, a fair amount of uh, biographies of Cole Porter. You know, he's the great uh, writer of all those wonderful songs, Night and Day, Anything Goes, You're the Top, Easy to Love, I Got You, under my skin and don't fence me in right. and more and uh, he was this you know kind of urbane prep school kid went a little bit to harvard and yale and uh, then breaks into this uh, entertainment industry and apparently um this is the first collection of uh you know his words and uh, through the letters, really seeing what he had to say about what he was doing and uh, the life he lived, which was complicated. He was married, but he had male lovers. Um, he had, you know, he uh, was from the Midwest, but he ends out in Hollywood working with all those Hollywood crazies, uh, despite his, you know, kind of Midwestern work ethic, uh, etc. And so it seems like an interesting collection of first-person yeah, it's, uh, 
It's crazy. I mean, he, he wrote like four movies and four shows in the space of like eight or nine years at one point during the most productive phase. And it just kind of an, incredible. The, yeah. It doesn't make but any it also, sense. It's, it's not just la, 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 ba, 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 this is what it is. The man worked hard. He nice. went through, I don't know, how many rhyming dictionaries. Yeah, well, they said several. kept ordering more. I mean... And uh, of course, he had that terrible accident where he had compound fractures in both his legs, his horse riding accident. And uh, they said he was in pain. He had 30 operations after that. But it was after the accident that he wrote things like Kiss Me Kate. It's not like he stopped writing. Yeah, that's sort of amazing. Yeah. And he does quip that he learned a lot of new medical words yes. as a result. <laughs> um, they didn't that. find that way. Into, so that's something to read. Yeah. Yeah, well... Cole Porter. So uh, the last thing we're going to talk about is something that got a surprising amount of attention. I'll just ask Sadie if she was on to this or not. There was a, uh, Martin Scorsese was quoted as saying they didn't like Marvel films. And uh, apparently there was a little bit of a brouhaha about that. Uh, and so he wrote a... Well, he a, said he doesn't watch Marvel films. Right. He, well, he said he tried to watch them. They're not his thing. Well, the, the, the quote was a little shorter than that, actually. It got him in trouble. But the fact of the matter is he did, he wrote an op-ed piece which expanded and said what you just said there. But um, it, what's interesting to me is that, first of all, it's a beautifully written piece. It's called The Dying Art of Filmmaking. Second is, uh, I didn't think anyone would pay much attention to it. It was on the op-ed page. It was the most read article in the New York Times on that day, which was on Tuesday of this week. It's kind of stunned me. I didn't realize that the Scorsese had that much currency. But here's what he has to say. Um, he says, look, as you said a moment ago, uh, the Marvel stuff, I didn't grow up in that era, so it doesn't resonate with me. It doesn't do anything for me. But he said it's also a different kind of filmmaking. For me, the filmmakers I came to love and respect when I was growing up uh, started making movies around the same time that I did. Cinema was about revelation, aesthetic, emotional, and spiritual revelation. It was about characters, the complexity of people and their contradictory and sometimes paradoxical natures, the way they can hurt one another and love one another and suddenly come face to face with themselves. It was about confronting the unexpected on the screen and in the life it dramatized and interpreted and enlarging the sense of what was possible in the art form. So that's his theme. His real thing is that the the Marvel movies are circumscribed. There's nothing terribly unexpected. as, as he put it, what's not in the Marvel films is revelation, mystery, or genuine emotional danger. Nothing is at risk. The pictures are made to satisfy a specific set of demands, and they are designed as variations on a finite number of themes. Um, I don't know. If, I know you like the Marvel films, Sadie, well, and I, I, I don't dislike question. them, but yeah. Is he saying Marvel? Like, I know he's saying Marvel. Yeah. But does he have a different opinion on DC movies? No. <laughs> I can answer that one. So then, like, why are we picking on Marvel? Well, that, that just happened to be the quote, and that, that would happen to be in the cinema at the time. But, it, again, the quote was taken out of context, and that's what people ran with. But he's saying the same thing about Marvel and DC. Uh, and, and, and so what difference does it make? It's just some older guy uh, complaining about the fact that uh, the movies that they have today are not the kind of movies he'd like to see or even make. Okay, fine, no surprise. But then he goes on to say the problem is this. The problem is that that's the only stuff they'll play in the movies. That's the only stuff they'll play in the movie theaters. And that the Marvel movies crowd everything else out so that there are very few screens available for the movies like the ones he's making and the people that he admires are making. And that, in his view, is killing the movie business. 
He says the situation is we have two separate fields. There's worldwide audiovisual entertainment on the one hand, and there's cinema on the other. They still overlap from time to time, but that's becoming increasingly rare. And I feel that the financial dominance of one is being used to marginalize and even belittle the existence of the other. And you say, well, isn't that just supply and demand? He says, I don't know. I don't think people are exposed enough to the kind of movies that I make. And then the final point is, um, well, gee, can't people see your movies? Don't they stream? He says, yes, uh, they stream. But uh, I don't know a single filmmaker who doesn't want to design films for the big screen to be projected before audiences in theaters. That's the business I'm really in. So that's really so why he's complaining. There are a lot of problems with this. Go ahead. First of all, the movies that he's making are not for an 11-year-old boy. That's exactly right. So why is he trying... Like, he's basically saying they shouldn't be going to see Marvel. They should be seeing my movie. No, he's An not 11-year-old boy should not be seeing your movie. He's not saying that. He's smart. You're absolutely right. And he's realistic enough to know that's not the case. He He's not solving the problem. He's just saying, I can't get in the movie theaters. Right. But you know what? I'm not... I, I don't care because he's a rich, famous <laughs> yeah, director. It's not, it's not about money. I think... I think it's the supply and demand thing. And I also think, you know, art is art. If that's something that you're interested in seeing, you shouldn't be shamed to be interested to see it, you know? It's like, you know, wine. Like, if you like the $5 wine, drink the $5 uh, wine. He's not against like anybody wine, going to the Marvel film. Well, he's, he's, he's just complaining about the result. He's not looking down at anybody who likes Marvel movies. He says that's totally cool. He's just saying, I can't get my movies into movie theaters. That's all he's saying. I would like to see numbers to back that up only because there are all, there are a finite number of Marvel movies that come out every year. It's mm -hmm. probably like three, maybe four. Mm -hmm. And depending on the year, it's probably well, less than that, that too. You make a good point, but he's probably thinking more broadly. And it's broadly. really the big ones, yeah. like the Avengers ones that are going to really dominate. The smaller ones are not going to run forever oh, okay. in every But theater. if you're a theater owner yeah. and uh, you have a choice to devote screens to these blockbuster Marvel movies that are going to bring in tremendous yeah. numbers or these other films that are going to bring in the smaller elite crowd. What are you going to choose? Yeah, you get look, he, he doesn't have any real complaint in the sense of being able to criticize any particular person. Everybody's acting in a, in a rational way, in an economically rational way. All he's really saying at the end of the day is that 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, if you looked at the movie theaters in a particular town, you saw an array of movies, and the kind of movies that we grew up with, we call them like Five Easy Pieces, or even The English Patient, or whatever. I think he's like romanticizing well, he's, how, he, how movies yeah. used to be, he, and saying they used to be so much more profound than they are now. He is, I don't know about he is, that. He, well, you may, you may there not. Are, there are different themes in the Marvel movies. I, I think he is, look, I'll agree with you. I think he's, the question is whether he's romanticizing or remembering. Uh, and you know, that, that, that's really, that's, that's a big issue. Absolutely. Actually on that score, I agree with him, but, but in any event, uh, I don't know. Do you have a view on that? You think like Tom and Jerry was so much better than like what Marvel is He's today? not talking about Tom and Jerry. Uh, Tom and Jerry. This is, all right. All right. Uh, okay. I can so, picture Tom and Jerry with Esther Williams swimming in the ocean. Well, that, 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 no, that's not what he's talking, that's that's what he's that's talking, about. talking about. He's talking yeah. about Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah. Um, yeah, so like 10-year-olds aren't going to go see Alfred Hitchcock. I understand, but would Alfred Hitchcock's movies be played in the movie theater today? That's the question. Yes, because they're Alfred Hitchcock movies. No. 
All right. right. We're not going to resolve this now. But that's you know, the... uh, we got to go uh, relax a little bit and recoup from uh, this fabulous weekend. Yes. Uh, so it was great to have you here, Sadie. Uh, this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper. And we'll see you again next week.